the eighth chapter of Revelation tonight. Revelation chapter eight. There are one of the things I guess when you study Revelation is for the sake of preaching is, is so often you have to ask, you know, how is this practical, right? How does this uh, help me in my daily life? How do I apply what is here? You know, there there are issues like that, and, and it, it's there, right? Application. Remember this, beloved. Application of the text is always a derivative of the text. In other words, what God wants us to know is in that text, that particular one, or what He wants us to, how He wants us to respond to do the word. It's there in the text. We don't have to make it up and force it. But one of the other things, if 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 you're paying very careful attention, and I, I know when it comes to Revelation, most of us are. Have you ever found yourself wondering or asking if, if the judgment of God, because Revelation is filled with it, the wrath of God, is it overkill? Right? It seems to be so intense, so broad. Uh, do you ever find yourself thinking that it's, it's a little too much or that it's unwarranted? It's unnecessarily cruel or something. Without getting into this too much tonight, I would say that our view of God's wrath is a window into how we really feel or believe about God, period. And often our uh, our reluctance to want to talk about, or, or and we shouldn't talk about it, we don't want to talk about it more than we talk about His grace by any means, but our reluctance to, to focus on it or to think about it or try to shove it away, could it be that our view of God and our horror at human sin and wickedness are off base? Right? Could it be that... Uh, we have too high a view of humanity and too low a view of God when we read these things and they bother us. And of course they're going to bother us on, as we're first introduced to them and we're reading through them. But as time goes on, does it bother us too much? And I don't mean, I'm not talking about taking glee in the destruction and the wrath. I'm saying, do we, at some point, do we settle this in our minds that God is holy, that He is worthy, that this isn't overkill? Uh, he's not overreacting again. God does not have a short fuse. His wrath is not him losing his temper at evil. He's been restraining and patient. He is calculated. But remember this as we begin to look here at the trumpets tonight. Were it not for God's seal of salvation on us, us sitting in this room, we would suffer the limited wrath that is being poured out now and the full force of his wrath along with the rest of unbelieving humanity. So let me pray, and we'll begin to work through this text together. Father, I ask tonight that we would, through the Word, by Your Spirit, come face to face with You. Father, we are protected by Your grace. We, we don't need to cower in terror, Father, but we do need a certain amount of respect. And so, Father, I pray that You'd have Your way with us. I pray that You would... Shape us by the text, Lord. Let us consider what it is that you're telling us here and why you're telling us these things. And we ask and pray for this. I ask for your help, God, to be able to preach in a way that doesn't hinder that in any way. And please help everyone that has come tonight to understand. Father, help us all to believe and have faith in our God and Savior. We ask and pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Real quick before I read here in 8, in chapter 6, verses 12 through 14, if you can remember, the sixth seal showed us the dismantling of the present earth and the present heaven through this great earthquake that will shatter uh, 
and shake both the earth and the sky. And so then there's this pause, this interlude between the sixth and seventh seal opening. Um, our expectation then, since it, the sixth seal, we get this description of the cataclysmic destruction of God's wrath at the end of time. You might expect that when the seventh seal opens, that right away we're going to hear about the new creation that's about to be revealed. But when the Lamb breaks the seventh seal, for a couple of verses, it seems like nothing happens at all. So let me read the first five of chapter eight. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. Now, very quickly, remember what is in that censer, right? What, what is this coming from? filled it with the fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. It's only for a half hour, only 30 minutes. But in light of the glorious visions John has been receiving, silence in heaven now out of nowhere for any duration is extremely significant. Heaven has been very loud, very celebratory for all these chapters. Remember from chapter 4, verse 8, we saw four living creatures who do not cease to say... Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. There are 24 elders who constantly confess the worthiness of God to receive glory, honor, and power. Back in 4.11, when the Lamb receives the scroll, expanding circles of worshipers in 5.9 through 14 break out with a new song of praise. The martyrs in 6.10 are crying out. They're lamenting. Their songs of salvation later in 7.10 and 7.15 add to this ongoing, building, heavenly explosion of sound, and now absolute silence. Beloved, this silence represents all creation's expectation of the Lord's impending arrival in judgment. All through Scripture, we're given precursors of this. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for He is aroused from His holy habitation. Zechariah 2, 13. This silence is truly the calm before God's storm. For the enemies of God on earth, it's a silence of dread and terror. But for those who dwell in heaven, it's the silence of eager expectation. Here in these verses, amidst the silence of the seventh seal, there are eventually voices that can be heard, right? The incense-burning ritual that John sees here reveals seven angels that are about to sound seven trumpets in verse 2 that will unleash woes on the earth. But just before they blow them, another angel comes to the altar to offer incense with the prayers of all the saints. God has answered the pleas of the martyrs who are now safe in 6, 9 through 11, waiting for the end. But he also hears and answers, God that is, uh, the prayers of his servants who are still alive in the midst of battle on the fallen earth. What they are praying for is implied in the next thing the angel does. And the trumpet judgments that follow. Once the angel offers the incense that symbolizes the church's prayers, he takes the censer in verse 5, fills it with fire from the altar, and throws it down to the earth. That is the result of prayer. Right? Prayer. Now the trumpets will begin to sound as the scene in chapter 8 shifts to the earth in verse 6. Fiery judgments fall from heaven to earth. Fire with blood on dry land a burning mountain into the sea, 
a star burning like a torch on rivers and springs, and a star with a key to open the furnace of the abyss. In the following verses, as we move in next week, God willing, to chapter 9, the judgment symbolized in the trumpet cycle come from the altar, in which the incense of the prayers of the saints has been offered as God answers the pleas of his people from the midst of their battle on the earth. John's first audience, they were going to see the results of this, the Roman society they lived in, shaken by constant scandal, split by intrigue, threatened by external forces. Their lives were going to be constantly unstable, but they were not to be paralyzed by fear. And beloved, these things were and still are instruments in the hand of the Lamb that expose the emptiness of human arrogance and are meant to summon the nations to repentance. This is the result of God's judgment on the earth. The fact that everything here is just in a constant state of flux and instability and worse here than it is there and then worse there than it is here and so on and so on. This doesn't mean God is not in control. It's the effect of these things being thrown down to the earth. The seal cycle is linked to the trumpet cycle by the vision of the angel at the altar offering the incense, the prayers of the saints, during this half hour of silence in heaven. The breaking of the seven seals prepared the revelation and execution of what was in the scroll. If you remember, the seal visions describe the forces that will be at work here in the trumpet judgments. But they also serve to assure us that the most threatening forces the earth and the enemy are going to use to mount against us will always be subject to the Lamb. They will do His will ultimately. God's will is what is being carried out as it is God who moves history deliberately towards its intended close. Those four horsemen and the first four seals uh, played out in the world's obsession with political and military expansion. All the war, the famine, the pestilence that leads so many to their deaths are the means by which the Lamb is not only controlling but thwarting the arrogance of humanity. And his church must not be paralyzed by fear and uncertainty, not when there's a rescue mission at hand that we have been sent to do in the midst of all of this. It may often seem like our prayers bounce off the ceiling. They do not. They are integral to what's happening in chapter 8. Though it may seem that God is delaying justice, uh, delaying the justice the martyrs were crying out for back in the fifth seal, and the deliverance they prayed for in the seventh God is not going to wait forever. When judgment comes, whether it's in the limited ongoing disasters of God's providence in history, as we're seeing here, or throughout history, the trumpets, or the full force of his wrath at the end, which we will see in the bowls revealed in the sixth seal back in chapter 7. That's what this was talking about. He is going to rescue and vindicate his suffering church on the earth and beloved, when God finally and fully unleashes his wrath, only those who are sealed as his property, those who bear his name, will be safe and filled with joy on that day, marveling at him. So let's pick it up in verse 6. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. 
A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of that star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. If you remember Genesis and the order and flow of creation, you see exactly here what we see in the Exodus, in the plagues, the undoing of the order, the chaos here in fuller form. There's so much of a correlation between what's happening on the earth now and the plagues in Egypt. But scriptures taught us that when we see these angels preparing to blow trumpets, that, that word has uh, biblical luggage on it, trumpets, we should expect, as we've seen trumpets before, to see God intervening in history to defend his people and defeat their enemies. Right? But remember, these judgments are limited, beloved. That's important for understanding when they take place on God's timeline. A third of the earth and the trees, the green grass in verse 7. A third of the sea became blood in verse 8. A third of the living creatures in the sea died in verse 9. A third of the ships were destroyed. The great star falls on a third of the rivers and springs of water in verse 10. A third of the waters become wormwood in verse 11. A third of the sun, moon, and stars were struck so that a third of their light was darkened in verse 12. See that repeated mantra of partiality. These trumpets do not describe the final doom of humanity. They are a warning by God that is limited so that people would have time to repent of their sin. And tragically, we'll find later in chapter 9, by and large, they do not. Jesus wanted to get his followers ready for life in such a world in Matthew 24, telling them that although they would always be surrounded and should expect to be surrounded by wars and rumors of wars and international strife and famine and plagues and earthquakes, these things were only the beginning of birth pangs. And that in God's appointed time, he is going to deliver his kingdom to the world in fullness. This is the same message of the vision of the trumpets given to John on Patmos. Disasters must happen, but the end, capital T, capital E, is not yet. The trumpet visions portray limited disasters and distresses throughout history that are bitter foretastes of the final and unlimited destruction of all opposition to God's reign at the end of world history. And we'll see a resonance between the spheres of earth that are affected in the first four trumpets and those destroyed later in chapter 16 in the first four bowls. Earth, seas, rivers, streams, and sky. That shows God's righteous wrath addresses every aspect of our environment to indict all humanity for its rebellion. Just like the plagues of Egypt were meant to do in Egypt both through the flow of history and time, that's the trumpets, and at its climax, which will be the bulls. While the bull judgments in 15.1 will be called the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished, the damage inflicted from the sounding of the trumpets only affects a third of each sphere. Later in chapter 9, verse 4, when the demons are released, they're restrained in other ways, right? They can't touch the earth's vegetation or the sealed servants of God. The duration and severity of the torment they can inflict is also limited. In chapter 9, verse 5 and verse 10, then when the sixth trumpet finally sounds, 
the great cavalry of invaders from the east that sweeps across, sweeps across the Euphrates will only kill a third of the population in 918. So in each of the first six trumpets, God is drawing the line this far and no farther for now. The judgments from each bowl, as we'll see when we get there, are universal. They affect every part of every sphere. So the trumpets of Revelation are consistent with the purpose of trumpets in the Old Testament and really in the ancient world itself. Trumpets have always played an important role in Scripture. We've seen them time and time again. We probably haven't even realized that they proclaim the coming of the Lord to defend His people, to defeat His enemies. They announced the coming of God in splendor and in victory when God descended on Mount Sinai to give Moses his law in Exodus 19, 16 and 19, if you remember. There's trumpet blasts. Two silver trumpets summoned Israel to a holy assembly before the Lord at his tent of meeting in Numbers 10, 2 to 3. Trumpet blasts signaled good news of the arrival of the year of Jubilee in Leviticus 25, 9. Trumpets announced the new king's coronation in 1 Kings 1, 3. The Lord would assemble the nations to inflict his judgment on Babylon with trumpets. In Jeremiah 51, 27, the second coming of Christ, of course, will be heralded with the final resounding trumpet blast. In Matthew 24, 31, 1 Corinthians 15, 52, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. But the seven trumpets used when the Israelites invaded Jericho, if you remember, in Joshua 6, 2 to 21, and that sound the alarm before the terrifying day of the Lord in Joel chapter 2. Those two instances of trumpets are extremely significant precursors of the trumpets in Revelation. Just as the priests blew the trumpets, marched before the ark at Jericho, in Revelation 11 and 19 later, the seventh trumpet when it blows, brings the ark of the covenant into view once more. The purpose of the trumpet cycle is to sound alarms that warn complacent people to repent and are summoning the church to the holy war it's involved in, whether it wants to be engaged in it or not. The use of the trumpet in Joel 2.1 is to raise an alarm before an attack. The locust army that Joel describes gives the background for the imagery in which John portrays demon riders emerging from the abyss when the fifth trumpet sounds later in chapter 9, verses 2 through 10, also Locusts, And we don't have to press a literal interpretation here. Don't let that scare you. This is real, right? This is real. John sees this. He sees what is happening. But it's very strange, isn't it, to see locusts that don't harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree. What kind of locust doesn't harm vegetation, right? Very strange. Very strange but instead are called to harm the people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. That takes us back to chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, immediately, right? The 144,000 sealed of the Lord, I believe, is the church militant at war with demonic forces on the earth for the sake of the spread of the gospel. So it, it would cause us a huge problem, by the way. You've got to see these when they occur. It would cause us a huge problem if we interpret them as a literal group of literally 144,000 ethnic Jews. If those are the sealed referred to in chapter 9, verse 4, and there'd be no reason contextually to think that they aren't, it means God will not be protecting any believers who are Gentiles or any Jewish believers that would happen to be outside of that 144,000. He wouldn't be protecting them from 
demonic torment. He wouldn't be protecting them from wrath, and that would be very inconsistent with the rest of Scripture, beloved. But listen, don't let the fact that the language is deliberately apocalyptic here in Revelation, don't let it make us forget or overlook the fact that these things are describing reality. This is really the way the world works, beloved. There is a spiritual war going on right now. And we're so used to defining and understanding everything in our world with physical terms, first-hand experiences. I can touch it. I can taste it. I can feel it. I can see it. Right? That's how we're used to gauging everything. But behind the scenes of our world, just beyond what our eyes can see, just beyond what our ears can hear, there's a spiritual conflict going on all the time of monumental proportions in which massive hordes of demons are at work tormenting people and destroying their lives. That's what is being referred to here in this text, the torment of those not protected by the Lord from the forces of evil. Beloved, we must evangelize. We must evangelize. These are not attack helicopters or something. Right? We don't need to press the passage that way for it to be true that the nature of language in Revelation 1.1 told us this doesn't lend itself to that type of interpretation. Beloved, people are suffering from oppression now. Right? We have to tell this story. We have to tell this story of the gospel. It is mercy. God has left time to repent. That's why everything here is partial and limited. He's telling the world, I reign. My wrath is coming. These are precursors of it that you might repent, that you might wake up. We're here then because God is patient, not because God is not in control. We must redeem the time that we've been given. We'll find out in verse 20. Next week that most will not repent. That doesn't even describe anybody repenting. But that doesn't keep God from being patient. In the heavenly silence that was imposed by the seventh seal back in verses 1 through 5, God still hears his embattled church cry out, and these cries rise before him as a sweet aroma. Beloved, God is with us right now. He is with us. He hears us. We're equipped with all that we need to fight. And again, our prayers are not pointless. They're integral to the downfall of the gospel's enemies. The fire falling from heaven here in verses 6 through 12 originates from the heavenly altar before the throne of God, right? Showing us the symbolic form of the trumpet visions. These are allusions to the physical plagues that fell on Egypt before the Exodus. The matchup is uncanny as we read Throughout Revelation, here the forms of falling fire devastate different spheres of the physical order. The point, again, is not to equate them with missiles or meteors or atomic fallout or acid rain or volcanic ash. The point of the text is to stress the fact that the destruction that is decimating the physical warfare all around us through um, or the physical order through warfare and other human evils and natural disasters, these things are ultimately the outworking of God's sovereign purpose being carried out on the earth, defending his people, warning his enemies. That's what's happening all around us. The first trumpet in verse 7 looks like the seventh plague in Exodus 9, 22 to 26. Again, you could do that with each of the trumpets. That judgment, if you remember, that plague in Exodus 9 was also limited. Remember? Flax and barley crops were destroyed, but the wheat that would ripen much later, that was 
preserved. It survived in chapter 9, verses 31 and 32. And if you remember, the region of Goshen, where the Israelites lived, was exempted, protected from that plague in 926. The destructive fire that John sees fall to earth also stays within the sovereign boundaries set by its Lord, its sovereign Lord. The sounding of the trumpet lets us see the effects of the riders who were released with the breaking of the first four seals. And we associate the judgment of verse 7 with warfare from the four horsemen because, if you'll notice here, mingled with hail and fire that's mentioned back in Exodus, here John also sees blood, symbolic of violence, and the red horse in chapter 6, verse 4. Famine in 6, 6 at the horsemen's destruction of grain and vegetation here in verse 7 and on and on it. Goes. Look at verse 8. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Something like a great mountain, John says. And there John again talks like Ezekiel talked. The same prophetic language that he used, reminding the readers that these descriptions are at best rough approximations of what is being seen, not literal ones, something like a great mountain. I think between here and chapter 10 uh, and back, you see the word like, like, like nine or ten times, something like that. The fire here, remember, is heavenly in its origin. That's where it's coming from. You saw that in 1 through 5. Just as the Nile was turned to blood and affected not only the creatures in it, but kept the people from drinking it, Back in Exodus 7, the destruction here is caused by God's turning of the seas and waters to blood. The seas don't become bloody because the animals die. right? The animals die because God has turned the sea to blood. John is seeing in symbolic form also when it talks about the ships, the disruption of the trade networks of the, the Babylon of his day, ancient Rome. Revelation 18, 19 will talk about how the, the ships were laid to waste. That's what they would have been seeing. Verses 10 and 11, the third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Again, we don't have to strain our imaginations here, right, and to try to figure out how a single physical star or meteor would be able to fall on one-third of freshwater sources around the world. We don't need to do that, or even just within the Roman Empire. The symbolism of Scripture makes the bitter taste of wormwood a sign in Scripture of lethal consequences for disobeying or not listening to God, like Jeremiah 9.15, the poison water of wormwood that God gave His people to drink, so to speak, in judgment. This isn't speaking of acid rain. It's not talking about industrial pollution, although these could be its effects. John's original audience would have recognized the strategy here of of, uh, driving a besieged city to its breaking point by cutting off or defiling its source of drinking water. And through humanity's greed and violence, you see yet another resource God gave to sustain us has been ruined and made lethal instead of life-giving. Did you know that as of right now, This moment in our world, 663 million people do not have access to clean water. Is that this? Is that this? It's not drinkable. It's not usable. It's not sustainable. That number is in flux all the time. 
So many nations just don't even have clean water. And you know the effects of this, the diseases and the infections and the horrible health that results from this. This is happening. Verse 12, the fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be crept from shining and likewise a third of the night. Again, the point is not how much of the sun is a third. And so you cut off that much of the sun. That, that's The word a third, remember, is telling us that the judgments given to us in the trumpets are limited. What is happening to the earth in terms of cataclysm from above is limited right now. It's partial. One day, which is what the bulls describe, it will not be partial. It will be full. The fourth trumpet affects the sky. It affects our source of light. And, and again, by the way, now, again, we realize that the order of the visions John is getting do not reflect the order of the events they reveal. It's not chronological, right? John uses the stylistic device of repetition or recapitulation. Again, think of it as different camera angles of the same football game. When the sixth seal was opened back in chapter 6, verses 12 through 13, what did John see? The sun was blackened, the moon turned blood red, the stars were falling to the earth like figs. But now in chapter 7, somehow the sun and the moon and the stars are still shining, right, in the sky. And they're struck here with only a partial dimming. As I said, the sixth seal gave us a preview of the final disillusion and destruction of the whole created order and preparation for the new heavens and the new earth. That's what was revealed in the sixth seal back in chapter 6. The fourth trumpet is symbolizing providential disasters that clearly happen as a prelude to that final judgment. Even though the text follows that description, what happens in 7.12 is before the sixth seal in chapter 6. Everything, grain, fruit, fish, imports, fresh water, beloved, even light, will be in short supply as history advances. And again, that's all the fallout of war, isn't it? Famine, fighting for resources. The last three trumpets are set apart from the first four now by a warning. That brings us to verse 13. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Repetition in Scripture is extremely significant for emphasis. That's how emphasis was made in Greek and Hebrew. You didn't use words like very, right? You would have repeated something three times. Three meant as much of that thing as you could get, right? So holy, holy, holy. God's holiness is perfect. It's complete. It's full. Woe, woe, woe. The emphasis there is on how horrible these judgments in the last three trumpets are going to be. The last three trumpets are woes, if you'll notice, that come to those who dwell on the earth. Which, by the way, means then that it's very good news that your and I citizenship is in heaven, right? The first four trumpets announce judgments that affect physical spheres, that surround or that support human life, the last three trumpets target rebellious humanity itself. And throughout Revelation, those who dwell on the earth 
Earth dwellers, that's a term that refers to those who are in rebellion against God and His Son every time. Earth dwellers. Back in Genesis, they were the builders of cities, right? The church, however, in Revelation is always pictured in heaven, or most of the time pictured in heaven, or belongs to heaven, wherever its members may be living at that time on the earth. Notice later in the fifth seal where this is going to be emphasized. We'll get into it next week. The locust army from the pit is forbidden from harming vegetation. Again, very strange locusts. And forbidden from harming those who bear God's seal. In chapter 9, verse 4, the end of the first woe is announced between the fifth and sixth trumpets. Later, in chapter 9, verse 12, the passing of the second woe will come before the sixth trumpet. Later in 11.14, The seventh trumpet seems to reveal not a woe on the earth, but a celebration in heaven in response to the announcement in chapter 11, verses 15 through 19, that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ. The final woe will be the climax of God's wrath on earth, revealed in the outpouring of the bulls that contain the last seven plagues. The destruction of Babylon, the defeat of the beasts and those who follow them, and the dragon. Now, the signs are all around us to repent of our sin and our rebellion. They're all around us. It is clear that God's judgment hangs heavy on mankind. There's resonance here with this idea of judgment being poured out on, on, on the earth in a limited preliminary sense, God's wrath. You see that in Romans 1. You see that in Romans 1. God is, 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 His wrath here is to turn people over to do what their will desires. The fallout of that are all these cataclysms and disasters and strife on the earth. But then we find that as the saints pray for God to wrap it up, to protect them, to defend them, God is in judgment hearing those prayers and pouring out wrath in partiality on the earth right now through these types of things, war and famine and pestilence and the loss of natural resources, all these things. God is behind all of these things, sovereign over all of these things. Things have been in a state of emergency in the world since the ascension, and it's gotten worse and worse. As the great singer-songwriter Keith Green said, and the church is asleep in the light, or can be, right? We There is no admonition in Scripture for the church to just sit tight and wait You know, everything's going to happen in the future. And so our mantra becomes, look, I'm just waiting for God to get me out of here. Beloved, we would owe an apology to every version of the church that's existed before us. Right? Some of the people reading this letter are in prison. Some of the people reading this letter were suffering, had lost friends, family members, loved ones to martyrdom. Right? It's don't let our lives here transcend the spiritual reality of Scripture. Our lives here, for the most part, are very good. Even, even many impoverished people in America, it, it's, it's, it's not as bad as it could be in other places, right? Because we have such a great infrastructure and a good, you know, well, we used to have a good economy and, and it, you know, it rises and falls and better to be poor here than somewhere else. But the fact remains, just because it's like that here doesn't mean that these things aren't happening. And, and the, the posture we're to have is not one that says, well, the world can go to hell. I'm, I'm waiting. 
I'm waiting for God to get me out of here. And so, no, beloved, there, there's an urgency here to the church. There's an urgency here. Right? Pe- people are lost. That they're, but we're going to see next week that they're, they're, they're being tormented. They're, they're, they're suffering. They're sinning. They're rebelling. And this is only partial what we're experiencing right now. It's limited. God is screaming at the world basically in all of these things. Repent. Right? That is not a request. It's a command. Repent of your sin. The fallout of all this is spiritual warfare, right? The enemy is filled with vitriol, filled with hatred of Jesus and his church. There's no limit, therefore, to his schemes or to his wickedness. That's all happening on top of all this. Beloved, we're at war. We're at war. If, if, and again, we, we won't realize it unless we're engaged in it. And speaking of how our society is an instant society that wants results now and expects everything yesterday, Eugene Peterson, some of his stuff is great, some of it isn't, but Eugene Peterson refers to Christian discipleship then as a long obedience in the same direction. We live in a world that is not only obsessed with instantaneous gratification and satisfaction, beloved, it's filled with evil and wickedness. Humanity is already evil, and then the evil one works day and night, nonstop, to stir it up. The battle is fought on our knees, beloved. That's what prayer is ultimately for. Right? It's, it's, again, it's, it's not a way to increase your belongings and your comfort. It is a walkie-talkie with home base because we're at war. We're at war with prayer. We're at war with our message. This is all we have. And beloved, this is all we need. Jesus has overcome the world. It's his. These things are evidence of the fact that he is reigning at his father's right hand. And God is pushing all his enemies to be a footstool underneath his feet. That's what's happening. That's this. This is what it looks like. In the midst of limited preliminary judgments that are warning people of the appending doom and waiting all humanity, God has not left the world without hope. He's left the church in the world, beloved. We are the means of this call to repentance. And we're not here to rearrange deck chairs on the Titanic and fix it, patching up evil here and there where we can. We're here to... Pull people out of the water because nothing is going to stop the ship from sinking. Look at this. Nothing is going to change this from happening. Nothing. This is going to take place. Beloved, the wrath that God promises is going to come. We're not going to live or pray our way into a state where we can keep this from happening. The world is always going to be right for it. Always going to be deserve, always going to deserve it. We are here to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim amnesty. So that people might be saved from what is coming and saved from what is happening even now. It's not pessimism. That's not hopelessness. It's reality. It's the way of things. And we have to wake up to these things. We have to remember our salvation. We deserve this and we're not getting it. 
were it not for God's seal of salvation on us, we would suffer in the limited and the full force of His wrath along the rest, along with the rest of unbelieving humanity. And we haven't been sealed because we're better than anyone or more virtuous than anyone. We've been sealed because God is great and His Son is filled with grace and love and mercy. When you think about Jesus dying for us on the cross and absorbing God's wrath as a propitiation. That's what that word means, right? He was a wrath-absorbing sacrifice put forward as a substitute for all who will believe on Him by grace through faith. When you think about that, these are times where you can step back and ponder, this is what He was taking on on my behalf. This is what He was shielding me from. This is what I deserve that he took on the cross. Right? He absorbed thousands of years of limited wrath and the full force of God's final and cataclysmic wrath in himself on the cross for all who will believe from every nation. That's what Jesus was doing when he died. Therefore, our souls are safe forever that our bodies might be given away right we have to get in touch with reality you know that sounds very much like a a platitude and of course i don't mean it in a condescending way but we have to get in touch with reality there's a war beloved you and i in our own strength are not up to it we we we're no match for the forces that are arrayed against us but greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world, right? We need his grace to ponder this. Let it all have its way with us, right? And respond accordingly because Jesus is worthy. Because judgment is coming. It's already here, but the worst is yet to come. And we need to ponder it because God loves sinners like us. This is a call when we read these things and what is happening in the earth or on the earth, what is going to happen on the earth. Beloved, it's a call to be the church. That's who got the letter. Seven in particular embattled churches, some worse than others, because that's the way history is. Churches in certain places will always be oppressed more than the ones in other places. And it will probably be cyclical and change over time as to where it's until... um, I think as you near the end in particular, the whole earth will be oppressive to the faith and to the church. I mean, I just think it's going to get worse as time goes on. My understanding is that just before the end, it'll get worse than it's ever been. Satan will be unleashed and unrestrained, and it will be literally hell on earth, right? Beloved, while we can speak, let us speak. While we can proclaim, let us proclaim. We we cannot Waste our time, frankly, on other things. Right? God reigns. He is sovereign. He is coming in wrath. And He has offered amnesty to any and all who will believe on Him. This is what Revelation is part, a part of what Revelation is doing. Not only assuring us of the end and that God is sovereign, that His Son is coming and that He reigns and nothing can stop Him. Amen. Absolutely. It is also saying, I've left you here because of these things. Because I mean to save. Right? I mean to save. This is what he's done for us. 
It's what he means to do for so many others, many that we know and love. So let us be the church when we read these things.